Um, I'm excited to, to continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes seems like one of the most relevant books in the Bible for, for a few reasons. One of those is that it expounds on the brokenness of this world. And when you turn on the TV and you watch the news, it doesn't take long to gather that something has gone wrong with this world. And, 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 some, and we need somebody to fix it. We need somebody who's powerful, who's righteous, who's wise, who's loving and good to fix it. And so the book of Ecclesiastes expounds on the reality of this post-Genesis 3 world in which we live. The world in which sickness takes many lives. Tornadoes and hurricanes take lives. War and injustice and crime and violence take many lives. And in, in this, this book, Solomon explores... These things that happen under the sun. Life matters. That's what we're calling this series. Life matters. There's various life matters that Ecclesiastes examines under the sun. And you may be asked, to, you may be uh, led to ask the question as you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, does my life even matter? He keeps saying, Vanity, all is vanity, striving after the wind. Does my life even matter? Is it meaningless? And so the book of Ecclesiastes leads us to ask that question. Does, your life, does my life matter? Does what I do in my vocation matter and how I live, the, the choices that I make morally, do those things matter? How I use my resources and my time and, 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 and operate within my relationships do those things matter? And so I asked that question the very first week as we started, does your life matter? And if you say, yes, it matters, of course it matters, Pastor Keith. You preached a sermon a couple months ago that, that uh, why your life matters, right? Um, but what would you point to biblically to say your life matters, to defend that yes that you have? Yes, my life has, has importance and significance and value. And then I asked the question the second week, are you satisfied in life? Are you happy in life? And if not, which pr probably most people would say, a large percentage of people would say they're not. And, 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 they, and there's probably something in their mind that they would say, this is, if I had this or if this happened or if I was in this circumstance, then I would be happy. Right? And so I asked, what is that for you? What is it that you think, if you're not happy in your life right now and in your life season and circumstance, what is it you think that will get you there to get you to happiness? And last week we looked at the season of life that we're in, that, that life has various seasons that, that God brings us through. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to weep. Okay, and he goes through he goes through these various aspects of times and seasons that we experience. In this life, and I asked you, what season of life are you in? And are you adapting to the season of life that you're currently in? Or are, are you still trying to live in the last season that God had you in? Have you accepted and adapted appropriately to the God-given season that God has brought you into? Or He's trying to lead you into? 
Have you adapted and accepted that? And today, I, I want to ask you the question, where are you going in life? Where are you going in life and how are you trying to get there? Okay, This has to do with our ambition and how we strive for something in this life. And the book of Ecclesiastes explores all the dead-end roads that humanity pursues, searching for significance, searching for satisfaction, searching for meaning. And the, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a wisdom perspective and how to see life and how to live life well. So may God give us ears this morning, ears to hear the wisdom that the, the preacher, the Kohelet, has for us this morning as we open up. Let us pray and we'll dig in. Father, we thank you for the realism and wisdom that are imparted through this book. And as we open the pages, we pray that our eyes would be open to see truth, that, that we would be able to see ourselves accurately in relationship to you, in relationship to the world, that we would be able to see the world around us biblically, God, and that we would have confidence, greater confidence and to trust you with our lives because our times are in your hands and you are the almighty you are all wise and you're loving and gracious and good you give good gifts I pray that as a result of our time here together God we would heed your wisdom and that we would live well for your glory and for the good of others in Christ's name we pray Amen. Alright, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I've entitled this message, Injustice, Work, and Friendships. Looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls, two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun in one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, 
to withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here's our big idea. God's wisdom teaches us how to see life and establish healthy rhythms with work and relationships. God's wisdom teaches us how to see life and establish healthy rhythms with work and relationships. The Creator who designed you and me and put us here on purpose and designed the whole world and knows exactly how it works, knows how our lives function best, knows what's best for us. And so the Bible gives us wisdom and how to see life and how to see our lives and how to establish healthy rhythms in our lives so that we can live well. Amen? For the glory of God and for the good of others. The first thing I want to point out in this first couple of verses is that the injustice of oppression is most unbearable for the isolated. Solomon has already taken a glance at this issue under the sun called injustice. He's already, and we mentioned it last week. I'll look at uh, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3 here in a moment. Uh, but he, he, he looks out at, at a post-Genesis 3 world and he sees these oppressors. These oppressors uh, and, and those who are oppressed. He sees the tears of the oppressed. And, and, and here's the stinger. Not, not only that they were being oppressed by oppressors, people with power... But they didn't have anyone to comfort them in their oppression. Oppression and injustice is terrible. But it stings even more when you have no one to stand by you. To speak up for you. To hold you. To sympathize and empathize with you. And validate your pain and your struggle in life. And so he sees this. You see, you see, on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So the oppressed, the oppressed, and the oppressors experiencing this, this, the pain of isolation. And then he, and he comes to the conclusion. He makes this despairing statement. And I thought that the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better, better than both is he who has not yet been born and who has not yet seen evil deeds that are done under the sun. Many people feel like this when they, just, when they reflect upon the brokenness of injustice in the world. And they, they, they ponder how crooked and how messed up it is in this world. And many people feel like, like Job who who's, says it would be better if I was never born. Right? Because it's so painful, they just want to escape the pain. And those of us who observe it we, and, 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 and allow ourselves to be touched with the pain, we feel it too. It's not supposed to be like this. When the Creator designed the world and designed humanity, He didn't design it with death and disease and destruction and oppression and injustice. God saw that it was good. It was very good. And mankind rebelled against Him disobeyed him. And so one of the things that Solomon said that was that was helpful and it's been very helpful for me as I feel the weight of injustice in the world around me is the reality that God is a God of justice and God will enforce it. Now we we had some sermons on this not too long ago because that is a current 
issue within our a current topic that's been brought to the forefront within our country. And it's an issue that's been a, a terrible problem globally for, for, for a long time. There are, there are entire nations that are very oppressive, holding people down. There are deep, dark injustices of human trafficking. We have more human slaves now in human history than we've ever had. And it's one of the worst injustices that we're facing in this day. And God cares about it. Now, the skeptic may, may say, well, man, if God is really good and He's a God of justice, why doesn't He do something about it? And throughout history, God has done something about evil and injustice. He has sent prophets and He's sent messengers. And He sent His Son, Jesus, who stepped into the brokenness of this world and who lived a perfect, righteous just life and suffered the worst kind of injustice in, in ever in history. He suffered and mur- he was murdered for your sins and my sins. And so God has done something about it and God will do something about it. He's coming back. He will judge the living and the dead. And this is something that Solomon highlights. He says, moreover, I saw in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, moreover, I saw... That in the place of justice there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. How overwhelming that is when, when, when there, is, there are leaders that are supposed to stand for righteousness and do what's just and right. And yet they're corrupted by the power and the wealth and the, the, the fame and, and all that they have within their authority. And they misuse that rule for the harm of the people. How terrible that is. But God sees it. And so we should fear him, and the leaders who have power should fear God. Solomon, notice what Solomon said. This will help us. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. Theologian Derek Kinder said this, The fact that everything on earth is, is seasonal promises an end to the long winter of evil and misrule. It reinforces the purely moral conviction that God will judge by the realization that for this event, as for everything else, He has appointed a proper time. See, God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17, I think 30 or 31, through Jesus Christ, He will come back and He will judge the living and the dead. And so as, as we look out at the world and we look out at human history and we see that God created everything good but mankind corrupted it and it's broken and fallen and then God sent a Redeemer to come and rescue us. And He did. He brought the kingdom. He inaugurated His kingdom. And then, and then He commissioned His people to represent Him. And then He's coming back. For the person who asks, why didn't God do something about this injustice in this world? Maybe they need to reconsider the question and ask, what are you doing about the injustice in this world? Because God has designed us in His image to reflect His character and His goodness, His justice, and His love in the world as image bearers. And so God has done something about it, and He will. And we we look at human history knowing that this is not how it's going to be for all eternity. God will do something about it. Amen? Number two here, 
is consider the, the, the motivation of envy that drives people to unhealthy rhythms of life. Now this gets down to the... I, I said this is, this is a relevant book in the Bible. Okay? When you start talking about eating and drinking and working and relationships, our day-to-day lives, it's very relevant. He said, I saw that the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Note, note what Solomon's saying here. He's saying something very profound. It's an indictment on humanity. Humanity's tendency is to work real hard out of envy, springing from envy of his or her neighbor. Envy is a terrible thing. And, and Solomon says, this is what drives, this is what drives the masses to overwork themselves. This is what drives people to despair, to just give up on work altogether. Like, I can't, I can't do as good as so-and-so. This, this drive of envy that springs from the human heart. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. And so some of the unhealthy rhythms that envy drives us to first is, is laziness. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So, so the fool just kind of gives up. Now, I, I, I'm not thinking that's anybody here. I think most of us here have the tendency to work hard and to be diligent. Right? But, but there's also this category of, 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 of the fool who doesn't do anything, who just squanders the gifts that God's given them, the talents, the skills, and the ability, the time, and the relationships. And the fool just squanders those things. Derek Kinder, again, he says this, he says, He, the dropout, is the picture of complacency and unwitting self-destruction. For this comment on him points out a deeper damage that he is wasting of his capital. His idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is. Eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. You see, God has create, designed humanity to work. Okay, Before the fall, before Genesis 3 happened and, and corruption entered the world, Eden... Was a, was a place to inhabit, a place of paradise, and it was pleasant and it was good, and there was something to do in Eden. There was some work to do. There was a garden to tend. And so work in and of itself isn't bad. It's, it's a good thing. God Himself works, and He's wired us in His image to do something. And humanity longs to have this place to inhabit with a thing to do and a people to share it with. And God wants to restore that to His proper perspective and practice in the lives of His people. The next, the next unhealthy rhythm, and this is many of us can probably more relate with this, is overwork. He says, "Better a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil, striving after the wind." Okay, I just want to go back to. Uh, the word hevel that's, that's given almost about 40 times throughout this book. Hevel. Okay? Hevel is the Hebrew word that, that can be translated. can be translated vain, vanity, meaningless. Uh, it can be translated enigma. Uh, it can be uh, translated as smoke or vapor. 
Okay, I wanted to, to have some bubbles up here and blow some bubbles out this morning and have one of the kids come up and go grab a bubble. And, 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 and that would be a, a great picture of Hevel. If I brought it, if I brought, do you have, do you have some bubbles? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I see you raising your hand. The, the, you know, it's, it's there for just a moment and then you grab it and then what do you got left when you grab the bubble? Nothing! Just a little bit of soapy stuff on your hands, right? The, the, the residue from the bubble. It's, it's Hevel. That's what Hevel is. And humanity strives after Hevel. Humanity is driven every single day reaching for these bubbles that are going to pop and become nothing. Nothing. No, without substance. Kids, I was thinking about uh, just movies and examples of this. And I thought about Peter Rabbit. You guys remember Mr. McGregor? He had a nephew who was a workaholic. He had a job at a toy store, and he was a perfectionist, and he would clean the toilets, and I think he even sipped the water to test the water in the toilet. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And this guy was not enjoying life. He was working himself to death. And he gets this inheritance with this garden that Peter Rabbit was dominating, right? So he gets this inheritance with this lovely lady next door. And he gets this, this inheritance with this nice house, with the garden, lovely lady next door in the country. And he has this opportunity for simplicity of life. To have a nice place to inhabit with somebody to share it with and, and something to do. But he wanted, he wanted the life of a workaholic in the big city. And, and he allowed himself to be driven and driven. And Ecclesi the wisdom of Ecclesiastes here, he, he gives this powerful statement. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. What are we striving for, saints, in our work? And what is it that drives us? What, why are we getting up and, 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 and doing as much as we do? And, or why are, we, why are we working more hours than we should? Right? Uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a survey done a while back uh, asking Americans if you had an extra hour in the day, a 25-hour day, what would you do with that day? Anybody want to answer? Sleep? Work? Sleep? Minute? What's that? Clean? <laughs> Clean house? Uh, what's that? Workout? Get a workout? Many people would answer sleep because we're overworked and we're not getting enough rest. And others would answer work because we, still, we, we, we want to work more. We're driven to work, right? Um, and, and so it's revealing. You know, there's this, there, in, in 1969, uh, there was this diagnosis or this, this term um, called karyoshi. Karyoshi. Karoshi. Karoshi. In Japan. Okay? And, and what it is, is it's... it's it's death caused by overwork or job-related exhaustion. It also involves workers committing suicide because of the stress of their work. And many Japanese have experienced this. This, this began to uh, surface in, in Japan, which is a very uh, a strong work culture that, that in many ways idolizes uh, work, just like we Americans do, by the way. Just like we Americans do. Um, the first case of Karyoshi was reported in 1969 with the stroke-related death of a 29-year-old male worker in the shipping department of Japan's largest newspaper company. 
The term was coined, karyoshi was t- coined in 1978 to refer to an increasing number of people suffering from fatal strokes and heart attacks attributed to overwork. And so saints, what's, what's driving us? What's driving us? Do we have healthy rhythms of work and rest? You know, God's designed us to, to rest about one-third of our lives. Uh, about eight hours a, a, a night, right? How many of y'all get eight hours of sleep a night? Uh, that's pretty good if you do. Uh, he's designed us every night to need this recharge, to, to shut our eyes, and, and, to, and it's kind of a reminder for us that, that we're not in control. We don't have the whole world in our hands, but He does, right? And, so, and then He's also designed us one day out of the week to, to have a day of rest where we're, where we're not working ourselves to death. We become uh, less effective and less productive when we're overworking. And, and, and one of the terrible things that happens is relationships diminish, okay? Um, Tim Mackey, the, the producer of... Um, the Bible Project points out from these, these two verses here in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the three different terms in Hebrew for hands or hand, handful or hands. Uh, the first one is yod. Y'all say yod with me. Which is, which is your, your, your forearm from, from the end of your fingers to your, your elbow. So that's your yod. Okay? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay? There's this this, this picture of laziness, this, this picture of idleness, okay? And, and the fool destroys himself with it, with it. And then we got the word kaf, kof, kof, I'm sorry, kof, uh, kaf or kof. Uh, better is a kof, a handful of quietness than, than two hands, two kahoven, grabbing fists of toil and striving after the wind. And so, so you, got, you got two extremes here. That men are, are driven by envy to, to either one, just fold their hands and just kind of give up and, and lack, have lack of motivation to do work. Or this overdriven uh, workaholic who won't stop, who doesn't know how to clock out, who doesn't know how to push the pause, who doesn't know how to say no when it comes to work boundaries in life. Or we got this place of balance or healthy rhythm, as we're calling it, of a person who has a handful of quietness, has a handful of quietness, as opposed to two handfuls of striving after the wind, or folded hands of idleness, all right? And so, so you got this handful of quietness, okay? So, so this picture is a person who's balanced, a person who's found a healthy rhythm in life, who's not being overworked, who's not being lazy and idle with their time and their work. And this is what God calls us to. He not only calls us to be people of work, but people who find healthy rhythms of rest and recreation and relationship. Relationship is important. Um, you know, one of the, the analogies uh, that, that <clears throat> Derek Kinder points out is the, the rat race. Um, you know, think of a, a gerbil who's just on that, on that wheel, just running, 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 and going nowhere. Or think of the person who goes to the gym and works out on the treadmill and runs uh, five miles when actually they, they're not running anywhere at all. They're, they're standing in place the entire time. They're getting a workout, but they're not really running. They're not really going five miles. They're staying in one place. 
for the entire 30 or 40 minutes while they're on that treadmill. And many people live their lives like that. There's a, an author, Elise Fitzpatrick, who writes, uh, in the Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health clubs. They were found in prisons. Treadmills, and, or treadwheels, as they were called, were used in penal servitude as a form of punishment. Some treadwheels were, uh, were productive, grinding wheat or transporting water, but others were purely punitive in nature. Prisoners were punished by spending the bulk of their day walking up and down an inclined plane, knowing that all their hard work was for nothing. The only hope the prisoner had was that at some day in the future, he would have paid his debt to society and would be set free. He couldn't even look on his labor at the end of the day and know that if nothing else, he had been productive. Hevel, striving after the wind. Another unhealthy rhythm that we see... <clears throat> Uh, that, oh, that, that envy drives us to is isolation. Okay, verse 7 and, and 8. He says again, I saw the, the hevel, the vanity under the sun. Uh, there was a, a son or a brother, and there was, in, in the end, um, there, let's see, I saw, again, I saw the vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, so he's, he's by himself, either a brother or a son, yet there's no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, and he never asks, For whom am I toiling, depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. <clears throat> and so isolation. When we're driven by envy to overwork, it creates isolation. It damages the relationships around us. And, and this is an important question. For whom am I toiling, depriving myself of all this pleasure? Deprivation is another unhealthy rhythm that occurs from this envy-driven work. Deprivation of enjoyment of life. Remember the Kohelet, the preacher, commends humanity to enjoy food, enjoy work, enjoy relationships, for this is the gift of God. Enjoy the place that God has gifted you to inhabit. The people that He's gifted you with to inhabit that place with and the work that God has given you to do. He says in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Work is a good thing, but not when you make your work the ultimate thing. It starts, it starts diminishing your relationship with God and it starts diminishing your relationship with your spouse, with your kids. And there are many overdriven achievers, envy-driven achievers who have, have had their children grow up and they, they become adults, young adults, and they realize they don't even have a relationship with their child and they try to make up for it by buying them things. And they think that they're serving their kids best by just buying them a bunch of stuff and giving them money that they're working hard for. Moms and dads, our kids don't just want our stuff. They want us. They want our presence. They want our undivided attention. They want to, to be loved and known. And have, have you there and available now, things in and of themselves aren't bad, but don't, don't let that drive for stuff, materialism, 
uh, or the drive to don't 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 let materialism or envy lead you to to overwork yourself or overspend. Uh, sleep deprivation that's another unhealthy rhythm and relational deprivation. Derek Kinder again says uh, such a man even with a wife and children have little time for them, convinced that he is toiling for their benefit, although his heart is elsewhere, devoted and wedded to his projects. So the Bible addresses envy and this drive that humanity has with envy. And he says that uh, Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It destroys us. Physically, emotionally, it, it destroys us. Uh, Proverbs 23.17, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Psalm 73, Asap had this struggle when he was envious of the wicked and how they were prosperous and they seemed to be doing well and at ease and things were going great for them. But he's this godly man who's devoted to God and things are really hard in life for him. And he wrestles with that. He wrestles with that perplexed. He's perplexed that life is hard for me and I love God. And God loves me and we've got a relationship. But these wicked people, they're just trampling others. They're doing wrong. They're, they're, they're deceitful. They're, they're thieves. And yet they got all this stuff in life. And, and it, was, it was almost a downfall for him. It was, it was a stumbling block for him until he went into the house of God. Until he gathered corporately with the people of God. And he was reminded of the big picture. He was reminded of the ungodly's end. Where they're headed in life. What, what they have. And that's all they have. For us as Christians, the things that we have in this life isn't, is not all that we have. We have God. God is our portion in the strength of our hearts. His nearness is our good. So whether we have little physically or a lot, we have God. We have enough. And after this life, when this life is over, we're going to be with Him. And so it's worth it living for Him. It's not vain. To be devoted to Him. James chapter 3.16 says, for, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Envy corrupts on the inside and the outside. It's like cancer. Here's, here's some damaging effects of envy. Envy drives us to unhealthy rhythms of work, rest, and spending. People buy stuff they shouldn't. Shouldn't buy because they're trying to impress people that, that don't really care. They're trying to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, right? Uh, envy distracts us from the purpose that God, the purpose and assignment that God has given us. Envy diminishes our capacity to enjoy the gifts of God that we have been given. Envy denies the goodness of God's provision and plans for us. Envy discourages us because we fail to measure up to others. Envy destroys relationships. When you look at the Bible, you see people like Cain, who was jealous and envious of his brother, who did well and was accepted. His offering was accepted by God, and Cain got mad and he killed him. We see Joseph's brothers who were jealous and envious of Joseph, who they, they, Joseph had his father's smile, his father's favor, and his father gave him this nice coat of many colors. His brothers were envious, and they threw him in a pit, and they sold him. Saul was envious of David, 
David was this godly young man after God's own heart, and he killed Goliath, and God was with him. He was humble, and he was accepting and embracing his lot in life humbly, letting God fulfill his plans for him. And Saul starts chunking spears at him. He wants to kill him because he's envious and jealous of him. And then you got Jesus. The murder of Jesus, Matthew 17, 18 says, For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, this says that it was out of envy that they had him murdered, killed. Envy leads people to do some terrible things that they will regret in the end. Even the murder of the Son of God. And Jesus, this was the Father's lot for Jesus, and he embraced the greatest injustice. He embraced going to the cross for you and me, and he responded perfectly. He, he, he lived a life of contentment and joy in God and, and he embraced what the Father had for him knowing the times and the seasons that the Father had him in in life and he kept in step with that and he accepted his lot. Jesus lived a life of poverty. He didn't have a whole lot physically but he had the Father and he had everything he needed to do the Father's will while he was here on this earth and so do you saints. You have everything you need to be content with where you're at in life. You have, op- you have great opportunities, great resources at your disposal. And so we got to combat envy, saints. we got to combat envy by enjoying the gifts that God has given you. And avoid comparing yourself to others. 2 Corinthians 10.12 tells us that those who compare themselves to others are not wise. And living in a day of social media, it's so easy to compare ourselves to others. To look on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or Twitter and you see vacations and you see nice things that other people have. And and, and it can can, um, facilitate envy in our hearts when we see that. If, If we don't respond appropriately, we can we can immediately think, well, why don't why didn't I get that? Why didn't that happen to me? Why didn't I get that position, that promotion? Or why didn't I get that new thing? And, and, and so one of the ways we can combat it is by delighting in God's goodness shown to others. When we see God showering down goodness and grace on others, rejoice with those who rejoice. Be glad for them. Don't be envious. Don't have bitter envy over their success, over the, the goodness of God showered down upon their lives. Rejoice. Because envy will diminish your capacity to enjoy what you have. You can get so focused on what other people have that you miss out enjoying what you have in life. Amen? So beware of that. And trust God with your lot in life. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us to do that. The next thing here is the benefits of necessity and friendship are great. So he, he goes right into the, 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 the benefits of friendship and the necessity. We need people. God has wired us for relationships. God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is a relational God. And he's wired us for relationships. And humanity flourishes when there is a loving relationship, when there is a loving environment of relationship. Okay? He says... Uh, Verse 9, he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. 
Okay? For if they fall, one will lift up, lift up his fellow. Okay? So there's, there's, there's reward in having two. There's, uh, there's protection. Verse 10. If, if, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. You see, there's protection in having friendship and community. Being surrounded in community and having others with you. Now, if you're married, you, you have this in your spouse. But, but this, isn't, this isn't exclusively a benefit and a blessing for married people. Anybody can have a good friend. Anybody can have somebody that they're walking with and working with in life and sharing the benefits of their work with in life. God's created us for community. And there, there's great danger in isolation of traveling alone, of working alone, of doing life alone. Uh, Proverbs tells us that he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. What is it? What is it that leads people to lives of isolation? Well, Proverbs tells us one of the things is, is they're, they're selfish. They're seeking their own desire. They don't want to be around people. Just give me space. Or maybe they've just been hurt by people. They've been so wounded and broken by, by oppressors, by harsh people in life that they just need healing and they just need space to heal. So there's isolation. Now, it's, it's important to have times of solitude, times where, 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 where you experience some solitude and quietness. Okay? But, but God wired us for relationships. And we, there's great danger in isolating ourselves and not being connected and not... Not being known, not knowing and being known, not being committed to biblical community. The early church was committed to biblical community. And one of the problems we have as Americans is we tend to think individualistically. We tend to isolate ourselves. We've got our space. And, and, And many other cultures in the world, if not most, have more of a mindset of community rather than individualism. And it can be a snare to us as Americans who we value our liberty and independence. The American dream. Nice house, dog, couple kids, good job. Like, like that, that's it for Americans, many Americans. And Solomon teaches us it's a dead end. If that's what you think is going to give you ultimate significance and happiness in life, it's a dead end. Because you're thinking about yourself. God's not in the picture. And others aren't in the picture. And, and the biblical perspective is to, for, for God to be central to our lives. And for, and for us to be others-oriented as we live our lives. If we're self-oriented, we're going to tend towards isolation. But when we're others-oriented and we're thinking about others, we're trying to help others, we're investing in friendships and relationships. We're, we're putting a relational equity in, so to speak. Whether, whether that's our aim or not. So when we do fall, when we do fall upon hard times, there's a brother or a sister there that we've been praying for, that we've been investing in, that we've been reaching out to, that we've cultivated a relationship with, and we have the comfort of someone being there for us, just like we've been there for them. What a joy it is. There's sympathy, love, and comfort within the body of Christ. And those who... Who know Christ. And so, so there's, there's greater reward. There's protection in friendship and community. Uh, there's also warmth. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
Okay, I don't know if you've ever experienced that on a, on a camping trip. If you've ever gone camping and it got really cold, you know, it's nice to, to have somebody to, to snuggle up to and, and, and get warm. Uh, and, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, the two will withstand him. And then here's another, here's another thing. Here's, two's better. Two's better than one. But you know what? Three is even better than two. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. Okay? And so it's great to have a friend, but it's even better to be immersed in a community of friends, of brothers and sisters, in the family of God, where we know and we're known, where we're loved and we're loved, where we forgive and we're forgiven, and we, and we cultivate this atmosphere of grace and accountability. And so as I'm getting close to ending here, I'd like to read a, the lyrics of a song by Keith Getty that I think kind of wraps up some of these ideas that we're talking about. The song is, My worth is not my own. My worth is not in what I own. I'm sorry, the song is called, My worth is not in what I own. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might, or human's wisdom fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. I, will, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. And so in closing, here's four things that I want to encourage you to apply to your life from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. One is to expect God to bring perfect justice while you grieve over injustice and address it appropriately with prayer and advocacy. It's appropriate for us to groan and grieve over the injustice that we see in the world. But expect God, the just judge, to bring justice. Grieve and groan, pray and advocate, knowing that God will bring the ultimate justice into the world. So don't lose heart. Those of you who are passionate for the cause of justice, so is Jesus. And so don't lose heart. He will return. He will bring justice on the earth. Embrace the limitations of your work. Don't allow envy to, to, to drive you to overwork Embrace your limitations. You're not God. You're not sovereign. You're not almighty. You need rest. You need food. You need relationship. You need recreation. So go take a walk in the park and enjoy the trees and the birds and the simplicity of life. Just talk to God, your creator. Enjoy the simple things. Don't let that drive to overwork diminish the enjoyment of the gift of God in your life. A place to inhabit with a people to inhabit it with, with a thing to do. Embrace your limitations of work. 
Examine your motives for work and rhythms of life. What is it that drives you? What's your ambition in life? Where are you going? And how are you trying to get there? Are you striving in your own strength like a kid trying to get bubbles, bust bubbles? It's Hevel. And so recognize that, that our work is limited. There are limitations to our work. And what, what, the, what the Kohelet, the preacher, does in Ecclesiastes is he points us to, to the greater work of God in, in, in throughout the book. God's work endures forever. And so we would do well to spend some time reflecting on how our work and God's work intersect. Where do they connect? And how, how can I get in line with what God is doing and participate in the ways that he's invited you and I to participate because 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul took, said, because, because there is a resurrection, and because there are rewards given, eternal rewards given, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not heaven if what you're doing is in Christ for the glory of God. Energized by the grace of God, motivated by the love of God. It's not in vain if it's in Christ. Only what's done in Christ will last. One life we have will, will soon pass. So examine your motives. And I'd like, I'd like to do that here in prayer in just a moment. I'd like for us to ask God to search us. Why, we get, why, why do we get up and do what we do? Why do we, why do we grind daily? Have you ever had that experience where you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry in traffic and, and you're just stepping on the gas and you make it through the light just in time and you, 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 cut, off, you cut somebody off and then, you, you, and, and then you, you, get, you get stuck in a red light. And then that person you passed like two or three minutes ago pulls up right next to you and they're just a slow driver taking their time. A handful of quietness is better than two fistfuls of striving after the wind. And they pull up, and you just feel so foolish. Like, that didn't do any good at all. Hevel! It was vain for me to try to save a minute or two by stepping on the gas, and I cut this guy off, and he's probably not too happy at me, but now he feels a lot better because he, he, he feels justified of just taking it easy, right? I've had that experience more than once. <laughs> it's a lesson of wisdom for me to learn. And if we're honest, we all have those experiences in various ways. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life, who, who worked diligently and, and, and hit pause when it's time to pause, who took a break when it's time to take a break, and he took a nap. He, he, took, he, he took naps, okay? He was sleeping in the boat one time, and his disciples were freaking out, like, what's going on? We're going to die, Jesus, wake up! And he's just taking a nap. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do in life is just take a nap. Rest. Trusting the Almighty, the Sovereign One. Alright? Jesus spent time alone. But He spent a large bulk of His time around people. Investing in people. And He had, he had a posse with Him. He had a group of disciples. He didn't live as a loner. He, he lived in community. And He built... He was a community builder. He developed and, and built lives. He invested into lives because those disciples would carry on His work. When He died, they would carry on the work that He was doing. And those disciples would make other disciples who would carry on the work 
that Jesus was doing and that they were doing. And then those disciples would make other disciples and they would carry on the work that Jesus was doing. And here we are today. It just goes on and on and on and on. Are we making disciples? Investing in God's work? A uh, little side, side note. Lastly, enjoy, the, enjoy and value the gift of friendship. Just enjoy and value a good friend. Don't, don't let your work keep you from investing in good friendships. And if you're married, it starts with your spouse. If you have kids, then, then to your children. Spend time with them. And then, and then within the body of Christ right here, okay, invest in those friendships. Let's pray. Father, your word has a way of exposing our hearts, our practices, the way we do life, the way we <clears throat> we strip things by trying to force it on, the way that we damage things by trying to cut corners, the way that we damage relationships by by not valuing them and living according to your design. So would you teach us, God, to live well? Would you give us wisdom from above that's pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of good fruits and mercy without hypocrisy, partiality? Would you deliver us from envy-driven living God, would you root out that work of the flesh in our lives and replace it with lots of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Would you search us now, reveal any hurtful weight in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. In Christ's name we pray. Giovanni.